everybody, welcome to another episode of Bothell Amplified. Pastor Joe here. Uh, today we uh, turn to Acts and we look at how we are called and what that means. Uh, we've been on this two-week journey looking at uh, people in the Bible who uh, were called in different ways. Last week we looked at the disciples. Today we turn to Saul and his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Again, drawing from Acts 9 verses 1 through 9. Uh, check out the sermon. What were you doing yesterday? Anyone do anything fun? We got, we got some hands going up. We got some uh, shout outs. Uh, maybe if you were here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, you were outside enjoying the sunshine that finally came after uh, days upon days of rainy and cloudy weather, uh, biking or hiking or uh, out at a Little League game. Uh, maybe you're working on your garden or preparing for the spring or catching up with friends or for those of you who are here uh, in Bothell joining for our annual women's tea in the afternoon or all of those things. Uh, yesterday for me, I, I was at the University Congregational United Church of Christ in Seattle. I was attending an all-day event held by an organization called Organizing for Mission Network. Uh, this is a network. Uh, we're part of this network. Bothell United Methodist Church is a part of this network. And it's, it's a group that uh, uses the art and skills of community organizing to develop and redevelop gospel-centric communities that act for the sake of the gospel in the world. And it was a wonderful event. It was full of love and laughter and listening and life. Meanwhile, in Buffalo, at 2.30 p.m. local time, a man who had driven from another New York County hours away opened fire, first outside in the parking lot of a supermarket, then inside, killing 10 people and injuring three. And this is why I'm wearing the orange stool today. Since 2015, orange has been the color of the gun violence prevention movement. I've had this stole on a hanger, wishing that I would never have to wear it. But here we are again, hoping and praying for a world where lives are not lost to senseless violence. But let me tell you that the this, this story gets even uglier. And it's because the U.S. Department of Justice is currently investigating the mass shooting as a hate crime and as an act of racially motivated violent extremism. This is according to a statement from the U.S. Attorney General. See, a, a white man traveled a couple hours from one New York County to another to a supermarket in the heart of Buffalo's black community, two blocks away from the public library that's named after Frank Elliott Merriweather Jr., He's the former publisher of the Buffalo Criterion. It's a black newspaper. It's about a half mile away from the Buffalo Black Achievers Museum. And apparently, uh, investigators now are looking through uh, a manifesto of some sort that, that, that might be connected to the shooter's motives. Uh, it, it laments the invasion of immigrants and black folk. It, it laments that these communities who are reproducing faster than whites might take over the country. And however that part of the investigation plays out, the district attorney did go on to say that, that investigators do have certain pieces of evidence that indicate some racial animosity. Whew. Goodness. 
What must it be like to be so convicted in your own ways that you would kill? To take life. And I'm struggling this morning because I am one that this man might have been writing about. So it's appropriate, I think, that, that, that we turn to Saul in our text this morning. See, see, see Saul was this man who was, who was so convicted in his own truth that it took a supernatural encounter with the risen Christ to reveal to him the abundance of God's love for all God's people. Hold on to that supernatural encounter. Because remember, Saul, he, he, he's of Tarsus. He, he's a Jew who grew up in Gentile territory. He, he took his faith really seriously, so seriously that he went on to study under some of the most prominent Jewish scholars of the time. He becomes a Pharisee. He's tasked with keeping the institution from changing, and he begins his work of maintaining the ways and the truths of his world. And we meet him earlier in Acts. So he's, he's holding the cloaks of those who are stoning Stephen to death, and then we see him later destroying the church in Jerusalem by, by dragging men and women to jail for their faith in this new way, this new belief. And now in our text, we see him heading to Damascus where the church is growing, and he goes breathing these murderous threats. He's looking to incarcerate even more of these followers of this way. Because for Saul, there is no other way but his way. No other way than his understanding of what was truth. For, for Saul, anything that threatened this truth had to be stopped, had to be eliminated. So there he goes on his way to Damascus when, when this bright light from heaven flashes before him. He's, he's forced to the ground and a voice calls out to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You see, in that moment, in that very moment, the ascended Jesus calls out to him, revealing to Saul a truth that is beyond his own understanding. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Jesus is now embodied in the lives of the oppressed, the lives of the women and men that he has jailed in persecuting them. Saul persecutes Christ. What I love about this is that it isn't the first time that God acts in this way, that God calls someone in this manner. Last week, we, we, we saw how Jesus, he, he met the disciples on the beach. He, he invited them to journey with him and with people, meeting them in the midst of their chaos and their brokenness in their deep waters, and then to offer healing and abundance. Today's story feels different. It, it's not unfamiliar, but, but it definitely feels different from the disciples' journey. And so, so go back with me to Exodus. We're, we're in the second book of the Bible, Exodus, and, and there's another man who, who encounters a bright light. His name's Moses. Moses, who spends 40 years tending to his father-in-law's flocks when he comes across a bush, a burning bush, blazing but not consumed. And in that bush, God calls out to him, Moses, Moses, 
I have observed the misery of my people. I have heard their cry. I know their sufferings. See, in both stories, in Saul's and in Moses' stories, God identifies with those who have been subjected to suffering by those with more power. In both stories, God sees the suffering of the people and advocates on their behalf. Listen, Moses, Moses, I hear their cries. I know their sufferings. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I think too often we we fall into the trap of thinking that as Christians we are called to fix people and we forget to address the issues. We think that it has to be our way, that we know what's best, that we are somehow ordained by God Almighty to be above and over the other, to rule the other, to change the other, and we forget that the story of our faith is full of reminders that God is for the oppressed. God delivers God's people from oppression and slavery in Egypt. Working through Esther, God is for God's people against the empire under Haman's rule. The prophets throughout the Hebrew scripture speaks truth to power against the oppressors of the day who neglected the poor and the orphans and the widows. Jesus calls the children to him. Jesus dines with those society would deny the lame the poor, the blind, the prostitutes, the drunkards, the tax collectors. And Jesus himself was arrested, sentenced, crucified as a political prisoner in the sign of Roman dominance, a public display of cruelty and power in a manner resolved or reserved solely for the most extreme enemies of the state, political criminals, treason, Faith has always been about the oppressed and marginalized. Even in the early church, our foremothers and our forefathers, they were the oppressed and marginalized. They were the ones who were persecuted. They met in secrecy, in catacombs. They cared for the widows and the orphans. They cared for one another. They sold all they had and shared with the poor, and with one another so that all could survive. But one day that flipped. And theologian Richard Rohr, he, he suggests that the turning point when, when the Christian mentality and viewpoint moved from the bottom to the top down is it's year 313. It's, it's when Emperor Constantine thinks that he's doing us a favor by making Christianity the, the established religion of the Holy Roman Empire. And this is what Rohr says. He says, we got all linked up with imperial worldviews and our perspectives changed from the view from the bottom and powerless, the persecuted, the outsiders, to the view from the top, where we were now the ultimate insiders. Power, money, status, control. 
You know, I wonder what kind of faith we practice. I've been wrestling with how we might live into our call as a church and as individuals. I wonder what kind of faith do we practice. I don't don't pretend to know how you first encountered Jesus, whether you were like the disciples who were going about your day when Jesus gently invites you into relationship along the journey, or maybe you had a situation like Saul where you were knocked off your horse by the blinding light, But, but, but here's what our two stories tell us, that both are valid, that both are necessary, and neither of them gives us the right or the privilege to claim to know the truth and force it upon the other. In both cases, we meet people where they are, in the chaos, in the brokenness, in the suffering, in the oppression. But for that to be a reality for us, the the lens in which we see our faith must change. I really believe that. You know, over the last few weeks, I I had the opportunity to connect with a few of my colleague friends, other pastors from other parts of the country. We, you know, all of us, we, we had just come out of navigating the busyness of Lent and the sacred holiness and celebrations of Easter and we shared these stories of joy and, and of seeing transformation, of, of encounters with the divine. And we also laughed, looking back at all the missteps and the challenges along the way. And in one conversation in particular, I was talking to a friend of mine, and she was sharing about a comment that was caught live on her mic. And they were, they were, they were having communion. Right? And, and she was getting the, the servers ready to, to be uh, prepared to serve, and they were all lined up uh, in, in pairs, uh, waiting to uh, get their elements. So she goes around and passing them out, a, a loaf of bread here and a tray of cups here, a loaf of bread here, a tray of cups here, a loaf of bread here, a tray of cups here. And she gets to one of her younger church leaders. He's a wonderful seven-year-old boy, and he's also going to be her partner for that day. And And he says to her, as she prepares to give him the tray of juice, can I for once be the bread, Pastor? You always get to be the bread. (laughs) My friend said to me that in that moment, she felt like she was meeting Jesus for the first time. She said that in that child's innocent question, she was reminded of the abundance of God's grace, and there was a renewed passion to share that grace with others. Perhaps it's time we reframe our understanding of faith. Perhaps it's time we stop holding on to our own truths. Perhaps it's time that we give one another more grace, that we commit to doing this life in community together. What might it look like for each 
of us to be called. Again, for, for, for some of us, that might be called for the very first time. For others, it might be called again. But what might it look like for each of us to be called not in the way that makes us better than or more powerful than or superior than, but rather in the ways that connects us to one another, that, that speaks out against injustice and against violence and against senseless death, a faith that asks us to speak out against racism and homophobia and transphobia and ableism, what might it look like for us to be called again? I hope and I pray that we might be known for that kind of faith, the kind of faith that is humble, the kind of faith that invites others along the way, the kind of faith that inspires us to move in partnership with what God is already doing as we live into God's preferred future of hope and of joy, and especially this week, of peace and of love. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for this time together for an opportunity to be connected in that love, in your love that knows no bounds. Make us humble that we might truly be those you call us to be, connecting with one another, loving one another, serving one another, being present for and with one another. Inspire us to be your people, for it is in your holy name that we pray, amen. All right, so that was our sermon on calling as it relates to Saul. I hope these quick two weeks have been uh, meaningful for you, that uh, the way that we see the world, the way that we allow our faith to inform the ways we see the world uh, has challenged you and really inspired you to uh, uh, reimagine um, that we too might be part of God's movement and action in the world. Um, have a wonderful, wonderful week, and we'll come back next week as we launch a new series on the future of the church. Talk to you soon.